Hello and welcome to The Things That Made Me Queer, the podcast that explores queer identities through the real life and pop culture moments that shaped us. My name is Crystal, your host, and welcome back. How are you doing? It's been a pretty harrowing week in the in the world of news between gosh, everything happening in Turkey and Iran and this week, the murder of Brianna Gay. It's it's tough looking at the news right now. Um, so I hope that you're taking care of yourself. I hope that you can find a moment for a bit of rest and relaxation. Have a bath, put on something comfy, and take care of yourself because you deserve it. In my news, uh, I'm heading to L.A. next week. Going to do a run of little shows around California. So if you are in that area and you'd like to come and see me perform, keep an eye on my website, crystalwillseeyounow.com, where I'm updating all of my gigs. But so far, I'm going to be doing San Diego and Palm Springs and a bunch of stuff around L.A. So hopefully I will see you at one of those shows. I think that would be gorgeous and if you're london-based my night mimi's has just launched tickets for our newest event on march 18th we are moving to our new home of earth in dalston and we're super super excited we are if you if you know mimi's we were at bethel green working men's club for years and years but we're excited to be moving on to the next stage of drag and delusion and circus and clubbing and all of that good stuff. So if that sounds like your kind of thing, um, check it out. Tickets are going super, super fast and can be bought at seeyouatmimis.com. Now, shall we get on with this week's episode? This is a super cool guest. This week I have on the podcast Baroness Ruth Hunt, former CEO of Stonewall, and current member of the House of Lords, we have such a cool conversation about what it's like being an advocate for trans rights and gay rights in potentially hostile environment, her legacy really as a campaigner, and of course, lots of really fabulous lesbian moments from her life that helped her understand herself. It's really, really great. And I think she's really funny and really smart and really cool. So. I hope you're going to love this episode. I'm sure that you will. As always, remember, go give the podcast a subscribe, share it to your stories, tell a friend, do what you can to get the word out. Thank you so much. And without further ado, on with the episode. Welcome to the podcast, Baroness Ruth Hunt. Hello. Hello. How are you? Great, thank you. How are you? Very well. You don't need to call me Baroness. No? I was wondering. That would be was... really awkward. <laughs> Baroness Hunt. I mean, I think it might be quite camp for a whole episode. It could be quite camp for a whole episode, but um, I, I would find it very hard to take you seriously. So Fair. the only times the only times I'm Baroness Hunt is when I'm in a room full of men who are being called Lord a lot, and I'm getting Ruth, and then it's oh, like... D- does that no, happen? it's Baroness Hunt. It happens quite a lot. So on those occasions, the title 
comes to the fore. Uh-huh. Although officially it's Lady Hunt, you know, if we're speaking. If you were writing to me, it would be Baroness Hunt. <laughs> Sorry, the instant jokes just start writing themselves. I mean, they do. They do just write themselves. <laughs> lady yeah. Hunt. Yeah, yeah. Lady Hunt. <laughs> You're no stranger to a Lady Hunt. No, no stranger to a Lady Hunt. <laughs> but because my partner's a woman, she doesn't get a title. Um, whereas if I were a man, she would get a title. But Caroline is massively fine about the fact that she's not Lady Caroline. In fact, she's thrilled. If you were Lord Hunt, Caroline would be Lady? Yeah. Wow. And that's not a question of marriage or civil partnership or relationship status. It's gender. Gender. So if I was married to a man, he wouldn't get a title either. (gasps) So the only people who get titles are wives of lords. Well, they need something. Yeah. It's one of those things of, is that the hill I'm going to die on? Mm. Obviously not. Mm. But it is one of those weird saying about the weird place. That yeah. Is there must be all sorts of things like that. When, when were you made uh, a baroness? In October 2019. Congratulations. Thank I'm you. Sure, I'm sure it feels jarring and exciting at the same time. Yeah, what was that like? Both. It was quite scary. It is quite scary. I feel very young. I feel very gay. That's a, nice, that's a good feeling. Both of these things. Yeah. But you kind of need some gravity and authority, right? Uh-huh. So, so I feel a little like a baby dyke out of my, out of my depth. And I, I feel very much like a girl, but not a woman enough. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I, I feel very... It's for, the, it's for the first time in a very long time where I've thought, I feel too gay. Like, oh, I'm, wow. too, I'm too gay. And obviously, I check myself because I'm now 42 and a half and I know what's going on there. But there is something quite, it's not because of anything anybody does or there's nothing negative or hostile, but it is, it is quite a big institution doing big things. And I sometimes feel like I'm going to fall over my shoelaces. Do you uh-huh. know what I mean? So it's uh-huh. the kind of, how do I find my authority in that space and influence in the best way I can? And it's a lifetime peerage. So the kind of pace is, how how do I do that? And at the moment, that involves as many one-on-one conversations as I can about trans stuff. Right. You know, lots of cups of tea with lots of very basic opportunities for people to ask questions that you can't ask on Twitter and you can't ask, you know, and that's, I kind of think that's my role is to kind of go, yeah, I know. Let me try and explain it. Mm-hmm. And let me let me separate the facts from the from the fictions and the so it's slow. It's a very slow way of influencing. Yeah, so many things just popped into my head when you said that. The fact that it's lifetime, I guess you can afford to play the long game, and then and maybe it's not a rush to come in immediately with gravitas. You've already kind of uh, alluded to this, but how do you identify and and what are your pronouns? No, but uh, as a lesbian, and mm-hmm. my pronouns are she, her. Mm-hmm. Does that exist in the House of Lords? Yeah, it certainly does if you want it to, and the staff do. So I do a lot of work on, um, we have a culture, a steering group for culture change that looks at how we can improve relationships between staff and peers and make us all work really well together. And the staff very much think in these terms. I'm sure. Some of the peers do, some of them don't, but it's 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 a mixed bag, you know. You've got a lot of different people, and I guess that long that long game is not necessarily about lethargy. It's just everybody has a much longer term view. Whereas in the Commons, your everything is for the next general election, right? Mm-hmm. So everything is what do I do in the next five years, four years, three years as it diminishes. The Lords is thinking, 
what impact will this piece of legislation have in 20 years' time? Hmm. So it changes the pace, and it means it's much more um, uh, discursive and thoughtful and reflective. Um, and there's moments of, of hyperbole and rhetoric and, and tub-thumping, but, but generally there is space to have much more quiet conversations. And there's, there's an acceptance that that can't be done with sound bites. Do you know what right. I mean? It's, it's a very different process. And in terms of the makeup of the House of Lords, what percentage are women, let alone queer? I mean, you probably don't know those figures, but I don't, it's got, I don't it's know off the top of my head. I mean, the percentage of queer women is very small. There are no openly trans people in the Lords. There is, I think, around 80 MPs and peers who are LGB. So that's quite a big caucus, but we don't necessarily organize mm-hmm. as 80. Mm-hmm. More, there's more division in that. You know, there's lots of party politics in there. So they might both be LGB, but have strongly different views on taxation and benefits. You know, so, so it's not a natural allegiance. I don't know the exact figures. I My guess is that there's about 25% women, like it's changing. There are LGB people on all the benches, but we know each other. Do you mm-hmm. know, like you do... Yeah. You, <laughs> You definitely know, and and we watch out for each other and work very hard to to manage. Often, I mean, at the moment, there's a significant amount of hostility against trans people mm-hmm. from some quarters, and that plays out in the Lords as well. So it's a journey. Are, are you finding people are receptive to those invitations of, of yours to, to sit and have a chat about trans rights? I mean, there must it must be refreshing for a lot of people to have someone who knows a lot about the issues and is willing to have a uh, an honest conversation, which it sounds like that's what you're willing to do, a non-judgmental conversation. Yeah. Yeah, there's, de- there's definitely an appetite for those conversations. And, and, I, and I hope that I've got a reputation now for they know they can get it wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- th- there's a difference between people who are vehemently against and how far you can discuss that. There's, there's a kind of there's an end to that cup yes. of tea do you know what I mean yeah. like there's, yeah. there's not much else to go here there's people who are completely on board and there are people who go I don't I want to be on board but, but I'm worried concerns. about this this and this yeah. yeah and they may get the words wrong and they may get the pronouns wrong and, they, and, and I'm and I have to make that safe I have to make it possible for those mistakes to be made mm-hmm. in order to have those unguarded conversations and we don't end necessarily agreeing on everything but perhaps sport isn't as complicated as you thought it was and Mm -hmm. perhaps prisons is not as complicated as you thought it was and maybe puberty blockers are not being handed out to every Mm -hmm. kid in school so you know we can still think ask questions about that but so so it's a very honest reflective way of working but very quiet so I don't do much media anymore, for example. I don't do much of this sort of thing. I'm quite cheesy and I'm quite careful about what I do and don't do at the moment. Different way of influencing. Well, thank you for doing this. We're so glad to have you here. And you promised when you agreed to come on the podcast that your list of items would be very 90s and very lesbian. And uh, you did not disappoint. I don't think I promised that. I think I said that, are you sure you want me? Threatened. Because I'm not cool, and there will be a lot of 90s lesbian stuff in there. And in fact, what I'm giving you is a lot of 90s lesbians, 2000s lesbians, and indeed 2022 lesbians. I mean, it's a... And lesbian adjacent, I think it's important to say. You know, there are lots of women who love women and love lots of other people in my in my list. Mm-hmm. But lesbians and our, and our crew are 
marvelous and i don't think we get enough airtime absolutely not cruise i also yeah i also take issue with you saying it's not cool i mean i'm gonna have to rethink i'm not cool (laughs) i also don't know about that you've had a storied (laughs) career of incredible achievements and we're about to hear all of your influences and i i think the jury's still out and i already have a feeling about which way it's gonna go you're sweetie (laughs) are you ready to get into your list let's do it so Ruth, you know how it works. Every week on the podcast, my guest brings a person, a place, a piece of music, a film or TV series, and a wild card that helps them embrace or understand or accept their queerness. And you have sent me your list. And up first is your person. And you have said Jeanette Winterson, iconic author. So set the scene for me before we get into you discovering Jeanette Winterson. Where are we in the, in the world? And, and what's your life like? So I am 12 years old. I am living in Cardiff. It's 1992. I'm uh, in a tiny little school that mainly teaches boys how to play rugby. So there's not enough girls for a netball team. I am studious and I work hard. My mum and dad have been told that they've got a clever kid. Mm -hmm. And if I keep my nose clean, I'm probably going to get to university. And it's all pretty exciting. And there's a lot going on. (laughs) <laughs> and I start fancying someone called Gemma Lewis, who is in my school mm. and is amazing. And I go along to Cardiff Library, where there is a gay section, a lesbian and gay section. And in that section, there is a whole load of really trash lesbian detective fiction <laughs> that is a key element of any 90s lesbian story. There's a book called The Well of Loneliness, which is the single most depressing book in the world ever uh-huh. and really big and I and I thought I'm going to read this and learn how to kiss girls and I did not I did not learn how Just to kiss girls just got sad but really sad <laughs> and there was Orange is Not the Only Fruit and at home there was a copy of Orange is Not the Only Fruit so I read Oranges and it just blew me away and Jeanette Winterson is the single most amazing woman in the world and now i know her for real Mm. and when i know her for real i become probably 14 like (laughs) everything about me is a little bit like hi hi (laughs) you're amazing and oranges to this day i mean it was written in 1985 they made a tv series of it bbc made a tv series of it in 1990 right so this is not the time when there was mainstream lesbian programming going on and it's about a girl called jess who grows up in an evangelical christian family and finds her sexuality and jess applied to oxford and got in and did english as did Jeanette. So it's all very kind of semi. So I applied to Oxford and did English and uh, and the rest is history in a way. So I think Jeanette Winterson is, is pretty awesome and all her books are incredible. She's always been incredibly inclusive and queer friendly mm. and and can talk well about trans issues and talk well about different what it is to be a woman and what that means and all the mess and beauty of all that. And she just writes perfectly. The problem is, is that most of my teenage relationships with girls were all conducted in the same way she writes in this kind of slightly postmodern <laughs> pregnant pause ways. So lots of door slamming and kind of 
you know. Um, so, so it was the only source of kind of scripting for lesbian romances. I held something back, but written on the body is another one of her books. And nowhere in it is the gender of the protagonist mentioned. Wow. And, you know, for that to be, you know, that must be 94, 95. Mm-hmm. And it's not laboured. And you read it and you go, you know, is this, is it? And I, of course, imagined a woman. Mm-hmm. And for a queer kid growing up, when all the signals are straight, to read a book and go, this is a woman falling in love with other women and written on the bodies of, um, there's a brilliant line in it, which is, why is the measure of love loss, which is the single most melodramatic lesbian statement in the <laughs> world and could kind of just be etched on all our bodies. So Jeanette Winterson is awesome. Um, I'm honoured that she's in my life now, even though I become a bit of a teenager whenever I'm mm. around her. But she definitely unequivocally made me queer. I love that. You were actively searching out essentially that book. You knew what you were looking for. I was looking for anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the height of Section 28, correct? Yep. So my understanding is that those books wouldn't have even been allowed during Section 28. Did they kind of sneak through or? Well, this was a section in my local library. So Cardiff oh, sorry, in not Wales. in the school yeah, library. Yeah, li- not in my school library. No, I used to go into town. But in my school, if we've got time, and stop me if I get too boring, right, we were doing um, an amazing book called I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings for GCSE mm-hmm. by Maya Angelou. In I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, the character Maya uh, goes through puberty and her body changes and she thinks she might be a lesbian and sleeps with a boy and gets pregnant. And I remember my elderly English teacher, Section 28, looking over his spectacles and looking at me and saying, if there are any young women in this class who think they might be gay, please don't feel obliged to sleep with a boy to prove you are or aren't. It's completely unnecessary. And carried on. And my God, I mean... In a desert where you couldn't talk about gay, you couldn't mention it, you could. there's no way we could have kind of had a conversation about that. That was his way of giving me a bit of decent sex ed, which to the kids these days would seem a little bit inadequate. But I tell mm. you what, in 1994-5, it was, you know, I remember how it made me feel now, that, that talking. So books were absolutely my lifeline and mm. remain my lifeline. I love books. I love stories. How were you reckoning internally with your burgeoning lesbianism? I remember thinking quite clearly that I probably should do a lot of thinking and soul searching about whether I was gay or not, but I would probably conclude I was, so I could just skip that phase. So I was much <laughs> I was much more assertive about my sexuality than was than probably was necessary. Oh, I just love it helpful. when people come on the show and they're just like, yeah, I just was. It, it was, yeah, you know, no long closet. That's fabulous. No, no long closet. And it was helped by the fact that in 96, I moved to Birmingham. Uh, my parents moved to Birmingham. So I went to an all girls grammar school. Mm-hmm. So strutted into this school in 96 as if I'd been out for years. Right. I was like, I am a veteran lesbian and uh, like, I'm so confident and I'm so out and it's all cool. I mean, literally, I think I'd snogged one girl badly in Cardiff. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But I acted like I've got this. So there was no kind of tentative, oh my God, do you think I might be? Do you think I might not be? I was like, I'm here. And, you know, my parents, that was quite tough. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite tough mm. because they were like, you are 
you're bright and clever and you're supposed to go to university and they've been talking about you going to Oxford and you're not you're really jeopardizing all this because you're having a good time well I don't know how much of a good time I was having I mean I don't know how many 14 year old baby dykes are having a good time even okay. these days do you know what I mean but sure. but it so it wasn't like I was kind of I didn't know any other lesbians I went to the local bar in Cardiff in my jeans and check shirt at 4 p.m and tried to buy a pint and couldn't and played pool on my own. Do you know what I mean? Like I was hardly like, there was no youth groups. There was nothing. There was no internet. There was no way of finding anyone. So I'm sorry, Ruth, but this is, this is all going in a big tick box in the cool category as far as I'm concerned. Is that cool? Yeah. yeah. Super cool. Yeah. Still played pool, even though you were refused service. In a flannel shirt. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to have to try harder if you're going to convince me you're not cool. Uh, why did your parents think you were then if you, if you weren't really getting into trouble or having fun or however you want to call it why did your parents think that your outness and queerness was going to jeopardize your your university trajectory because they thought that i would get judged and right. miss out right that's hard and you know they were seeing headlines every day that gay people were evil and killing people mm -hmm. My dad had just completed a life insurance form that asked if he was homosexual, and if he'd said yes, he wouldn't have got that life insurance. I mean, there was there was no other data sources. Mm -hmm. Beth Jordash, there was a there was a, a, a soap opera called Brookside, way before your time. You're so young, right? So Brookside was a Channel Four document soap opera, and Beth Jordash, Anna Friel, played Beth Jordash, uh -huh. and she she kissed a girl, and she's so hot, right? So yes. Anna Friel kissing this ginger-haired beauty on Brookside in 1993 was amazing, but she went on to kill her dad and bury him under a patio. Do you know what I mean? So, right. so there wasn't really kind right. of like, yeah. hey, parents. I mean, so all my time at Stonewall, I mean, certainly the first, my first six, seven years at Stonewall, so I did 14 years at Stonewall from 24 to, how old was I, 39 when I left, I produced stuff that my parents would have needed and got it into every library. So it was 10 things to do if your kid comes out and tells you they're gay. Uh -huh. How to feel cool about your kids being gay. Yeah. Three ways in which you could integrate sexual orientation into your maths lesson. Mm -hmm. Like everything I needed. <laughs> what are the ways? <laughs> Paul and John love each other and they share a cake. But Paul has eaten a third of it and John only wants a third. How much of the cake is left? Right. So oh, wow. all so this easy. stuff. Yeah. So all this stuff was just this kind of generously could be described as paying it forward, but actually it was a selfish desire to go, what did my mum and dad need? And I remember doing a top 10 tips for coming out to your parents. Tip number one, don't be drunk. Tip number two, you've had ages to get used to the idea. You've given them 30 seconds. Give them a bit longer. You know, mm -hmm. all this stuff that just didn't exist, we basically produced in Stonewall in that kind of 2004 to 2010 and got it out into as many schools and libraries and employers as we could just to kind of stop that fear that parents have when they think their kid is other. Mm -hmm. And I think, no, I mean, you, you called me young, which I appreciate, but I'm not that much younger than you. And I don't think any parents in that, time had the tools and even with the best wills in the world didn't couldn't get it all right no. and you know my mom was concerned about you know my sexual health because obviously you would be as a mother and you know decades prior to me coming out you know that had been the dominant news story of hiv and aids so it's, it's that's not a helpful thing to hear when you come out it's not what you want to hear but 
it's an understandable response. And yeah, it sounds like if you you feel that if your parents had had the better tools, you would have had a better response. Is that? I think so. I'm I'm very forgive. I mean, I'm sure I was I was a nightmare, but I I'm very forgiving now because what did they have and what could they have done and and it drove me to become head girl of every institution I've ever belonged to. So, you know, it wasn't all bad because I, <laughs> I kind of thought, well, if people are going to worry about me being gay, I just need to show them that I'm really good uh-huh. at something else. Uh-huh. You know? So, I, I, you know, I look, look, you know, oh, she, she she might be gay, but gosh, she's a head girl. Oh, she might be gay, but she's president of her college in Oxford. Oh, well, she might be gay, but she's a baroness. So, she's the, you know. <laughs> Sorry, wait, is there, can you be the head of the House of Lords? You could be the Lord Speaker, um, okay. and, and we'll I, 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 don't, I don't need to do that, Crystal. Like, whatever, <laughs> whatever. Give it. I, you've got a you've got a lifetime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can chill. <laughs> That's also just such a common queer storyline as well, isn't it? Let me just go ahead and excel. Prove you wrong. But we should move on to your second item. I think we're we're jumping all over the place, which I absolutely love. But I don't know if we're taking a dip dip back in time. Up next is your album and you've given living in clip by annie defranco the lesbian hits keep coming i love it yeah i mean she's openly bi and i think it's important we acknowledge that she made music under her own record label so even before beyonce knew that was the cool thing to do like (laughs) annie defranco was there doing that Uh, there is a whole subgenre of folksy lesbian music and i don't know how familiar you are with it but you know the indigo girls yeah yeah. right there's a definitely genre and my my brother, bless him, when when I did come out, so he's three years younger than me. So when I was fifteen, fourteen, and he knew, he would buy me, the Pet Shop Boys, Erasure, George Michael. So he kept he kept me. He was like, I support you. <laughs> I love you. And here is a CD of disco. Um, and you know, my heart goes out to him, and I love him for that because what thirteen year old boy in nineteen ninety three knows so how sweet. best to kind of support his gay sister do you know what i mean so full respect but i did eventually discover that there were women writing and and women writing songs and and annie defranco her stuff is just i mean i listen to it now and i'm transported back to my undergraduate years which was also soundtracked by things like james and the stone roses and lots of indie boy bands Mm -hmm. and annie defranco and she writes an amazing song called untouchable face yeah there's this great line that says fuck you and your untouchable face <laughs> so in the in a maelstrom of lesbian drama you know i was in an all-girls college in oxford i was no longer the only girl in the world being gay there was a lot of uh, what we call lugs lesbians until graduation right so lots uh... of people who um, were learning about how to explore their clitoris through the aid of a well burst lesbian before they went back to their boyfriends. Do you know what I mean? So um, there was a lot of drama and Annie DeFranco was the perfect soundtrack to that. And mm. Both Hands and uh, 32 Flavors is all about being bi and just just an amazing, amazing album. I was listening to her this morning in prep for the podcast and just really enjoying. I also was taken back, but it was more to being 19 and my lesbian friends having their dramas and me being you know, aware of it and witnessing it, but uh, one step removed. <laughs> but anyone who writes a song called Both Hands, mm. which is about writing graffiti on your body and drawing <laughs> the story of how hard we tried. I mean, it was just, give me that and Jeanette Winterson. I mean, it's amazing I ever 
managed any long-term relationship, but it just quite an epic kind of soundtrack. 20 Marlboro Lights in my pocket, <laughs> cheap pints, sitting in a kind of attic room in Oxford, looking out at the river, oh. crying to Annie DeFranco. I mean, writes itself, do you know what I'm saying? So uncool, though. Desperately uncool. That yeah. sounds... <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid you're digging your yourself deeper into the cool hole. I still had a flannel shirt on then, do you know what I mean? It was that, great. And a Welsh rugby shirt. And, you know, yeah, camel lights occasionally. How was Oxford? How was that time? Other than the tumultuous? I mean, I loved it. It's not the done thing these days. And you kind of have to go, you know, yes, I, w- I went there and I didn't really like it. Yeah. And I worked very hard to get there. I was the first in my family to go. First, in, my mum went to university as a mature student. I went at 18. I was young, scrappy and hungry and absolutely determined to make the most of it. And I loved it. I spent three years reading everything from Virginia Woolf to Beowulf and everything in between and translating Middle English. And I've got a tattoo at the moment on my back uh, of Julian of Norwich, a medieval nun in original Middle English. Do you know what I mean? Like, I am, I am I proper all-out geek. I think that's what Annie DeFranco meant by graffiti on your body. I think she did. I think <laughs> yeah. she meant Julian of Norwich, medieval <laughs> nun, who basically uh-huh. got so ill um, and and had this massive trip where she saw Jesus and wrote about it. And women at that time didn't have trips, didn't write, didn't survive, things like that. And certainly didn't her writing didn't survive. And she says, um, sin is behoverly, which is shit happens, but all shall be well and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. I mean, it's just this most amazing sentiment. So I just washed myself in literature. I washed myself in student politics. I was president of the college and then president of the Students' Union openly gay in 2001, being head of Oxford's student union. I loved girls and met lots of them and kissed lots of them. I loved smoking in my bedroom, listening to Hefner and listening to Annie DeFranco. I mean, I I had a great time. I learned to drink very well on subsidized beers and basically had a very good life indeed. Where did that drive to succeed and to be the top of the class. And I mean, you mentioned earlier, I'm going to prove you wrong a little bit, but you think that's just innate to you as well? I don't know. I think I'm quite driven. I mean, when when I was at Oxford, we had a film crew with us for three years. Channel 4 sent a documentary crew to okay. follow six girls. You did the reality TV thing. I did do the reality <laughs> TV, but but actually it's it, interesting that it was, it was commissioned in 97 to be broadcast in 2002. And it was going to be six one-hour films, all filmed on film, right? So very high-spec, long, lingering shots of Oxford, expensive soundtracks, you know, all this kind of stuff. And Big Brother got commissioned in the middle. And suddenly Channel 4 went from, we would like six hours of footage about young women exploring their lives, to we would like 12 people in a house getting pissed, please. So... (laughs) (laughs) They ended up cancelling my film. So film five was the film about sexuality. And I I made a really difficult decision to come out in that documentary. So 99, 2000, would I talk about my sexuality? And and a lot of the message was don't, don't do that. Because if you change your mind, you can't take it back. Mm. And it was in the days, and I'm sure it's still the case now, that being LGBT was considered a phase, likely to move on, you know, not really... So it was considered a big risk to be so out. And I guess I just, I made 
lots of decisions about about authenticity i guess about how i couldn't hide hiding parts of who i was made me ill and secrets are toxic and so but also i i'm driven and i like to get the job done so it was much harder to be elected president of my college because it was an all-girls college and they didn't want the association of a butch lesbian mm. as chief exec of the college and um not chief exec uh jcr junior common room president whereas it was different for to be president of the students union so mm. they were they were a bit more up for that because that's a bit more liberal and a bit more left-wing but i saw things that needed to be done and i did it i guess mm-hmm. you mentioned being butch have you always presented as butch yeah i guess so i mean if we were in a proper butch symposium i would not be regarded as butch they'd be like <laughs> sweetheart no so I, I i certainly don't get to to wear the badge as part uh, of the crew but okay. i've always been perceived as butch and right. i have always in different ways i mean i think i last wore a skirt in when i was seven i cut all my hair off when i was 14 you know like so all the kind of things um and we'll probably get onto this later you know i love i love sharp tailoring and suits and shirts Mm -hmm. and ties but what's interesting is i've never um and i'm lucky i've never questioned my gender or my my sex do you know i've always known i'm a woman and and been neither okay or not okay that's just been who i am Mm -hmm. so that presentation has has become more important part of my identity but it it causes problems. There yeah. was a big stage, and and including during my time at Stonewall, there was a lot of you know don't be too gay, and and there was a big time during my time at Stonewall with, and I think the movement took a very assimilationist approach for some time, and I think we're paying the price for that now. And that assimilationist approach said, please can we have the same rights as you because we're just like you. Right. So yes. so gay gay men couldn't be too camp, and women certainly couldn't be butch. You know you needed to to fit in and pass you know for want of a better word and so i remember quite clearly getting messages that i needed to to soften and and that i would i would frighten people and that that being that kind of lesbian would be frightening for people and they would make a lot of assumptions about me and of course they do but the cost to me of not being me is greater than the judgments that they make about me so that's Mm -hmm. that's the constant kind of battle that queer people go through in different ways isn't it it's also impossible to weigh up the opportunities that you receive by being fully yourself. My hope in my life is that those will end up outweighing anything that I miss out on by not being more palatable. Yeah. I had a job as well where I hadn't even I hadn't started doing drag at this point and I had only just started the job and I was on a six month contract to see how it all went. And uh, a photo of me on holiday with friends in Sitches I put it up on Facebook and I was in a bra and I was in a bikini and a wig and someone pulled me into HR and said, you really need to think about your personal brand and what you're posting on social media because, you know, you want a future at this company and people will make judgments and assumptions. And so I did tone myself down for that job. But as a result, I ended up becoming a big giant drag queen on this side because I couldn't have, I couldn't merge myself in one place. So I had to go extreme in the other direction in my private life. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And it there's no guarantees when you ask someone to tamp it down that you're going to get a, a, a better result. In fact, you're almost certainly not going to. No. Can we go back to something you said before? Just I'm curious about butchness, because you mentioned you would not be considered butch in the butch symposium, but you're perceived as butch. 
Is that something you can elaborate on a little bit more for people who are not? I'm not. I'm the, not a lesbian. Yeah. So part of the lesbian this subculture. This is a nuance. This is a nuance I'm perhaps missing. And I probably don't fully understand all the nuance uh-huh. because it's a changing state. But but I guess that people who identify as butch would would more closely align themselves with a different way of being, much more of a rather than just presentational and clothes. It's much more of a mm-hmm. mindset uh, that is about how you relate to the world and how you relate to other people and, and the relationships you form and, and how you how you exist in those relationships. And that is a, a an important subset of our culture and our right. cultures. Do you mean sex? Sex, maybe. Or you talking? Yeah, sex. So, so uh, you can get uh, stone butchers who, who will only give, for example, and you know, uh-huh. so so there's all those different connotations, and I, and I'm I'm not sufficiently educated, and I, I mean I used to be, I used to know all this right. stuff, right? But but I know that I'm I I'm not in that category, you know. Me and me and Caroline mm-hmm. um, uh, are not butch femme. Um, that's not our vibe, and and Caroline mm-hmm. has always found her own way, and and so have I to a certain extent. But we can also both turn up in three piece suits and shirts and ties. Do you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think that my presentation would be regarded as butch, but my identity wouldn't. I think my identity is a lesbian. I think dyke is a better way of describing me, though if, if someone else did that, I'd have words. Do you know you could probably call me a dyke, but you know, that's um I'm not thanks very to. much. So, you know, I think I think dyke is quite an, a quite a powerful descriptor. Yes. If I'm with fellow dykes, then we're dykes. Do you know what I mean? And um, uh-huh. that's important. Yeah. Whereas butch, I think, is is another thing along. Um but I'm perceived as butch and and I'm perceived as butch because I wear three-piece suits and have short backs and sides mm-hmm. and I wear boots and I've never worn heels but so how people respond to those identities that is is more negative there's, there's much more um, negativity towards lesbians who present in that way and we're much more invisible mm-hmm. and there is far less recognition so every time I go into the house of lords looking like that it is a active decision and quite a brave one mm-hmm. I'm very aware of that perhaps Hmm. I love that. I relate just in the the sense of being perceived a certain way because I do drag half the time. And so people make assumptions about what that means about me, my personal life, my sex life, uh, what kind of gay man that I am, or am I even a gay man? Yeah. Are you secretly trans? You know, things like this. There's lots of assumptions that come with that. And it's nice to just exist somewhere a little bit in the middle of all yeah. of that. It doesn't matter too much. And it's why I tend not to share my pronouns because right. in the circles I move in now with my role at Deeds and Words, I'm always aware that for someone to share their pronouns can often be compounding a lie for them. And mm. I think it can be deeply personal. And I think a lot of people think mm. I'm trans and either through uh, with a non-binary identity or that I'm I'm on a journey to becoming a trans man. And it feels very wrong for me to go, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, you you do you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't, doesn't, sure. doesn't matter to me yeah. what, what you think. And so I, I'm always very cautious about pronouns and asking people about pronouns and, and how I talk about that. I'm just immensely aware of how lucky I am that I'm a woman who was born a woman and feels a woman and is a woman. And I get to take the tie off if I'm a bit scared. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. 
how lucky yes. am I? You know, and I can reflect on why I feel scared and I can be sad about why I feel scared, but I can still take it off. And I, I love the phrase lesbian adjacent. Do you know what I mean? There's this is like our lesbian community and these beautiful beings in our adjacent to our lesbian communities who don't have that same opportunity, I guess, to be able to put that down when it feels too heavy. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a the weighing up of wanting to get it right for people so that you uh, so you don't get it wrong. Like asking people's pronouns, you know, it's important on one hand, and then I suppose it it is it. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky thing, and also often it's people who are gender not conforming that are going to be the ones mm-hmm. who are asked their pronouns. It's not people who present more yeah. cis, as it were. So. It is almost kind of an othering immediately anyway. So I feel quite conflicted. I've got the Kool-Aid and I get it. Uh-huh. And, and it's a signifier. And when cis people share their pronouns, it's an indication that they've read something somewhere and they're not going to be rubbish if someone trans comes out. So I would never want to derail this uh-huh. movement that's going on. But I'm also aware that it's complicated for some people. Yeah. And yeah. I would never be complacent about that, I guess. Hmm. Food for thought. Mm. I love it. Let's move on to your next item. Up next, we have your TV show, which is A League of Their Own, the 2022 version. I didn't know they'd made a TV series about A League of Their Own. So I'm very excited. I was very excited to see this. And this links kind of to what we were talking about. So so most people will know A League of Their Own in 1992, right? So the 1992 version has Madonna um, being Madonna and And Rosie, Rosie. And this... <laughs> what we'd say now is queer baiting, right? Like this tiny uh-huh. glimmer of a little bit of queer. And for those of you, you know, a league of their own is all about the women's baseball team during the war who were formed to kind of provide bread and circuses while the men were all fighting and, and baseball's fun to let the girls play mm-hmm. baseball. And the film's great and Tom Hanks and blah, blah, blah. And they've made this series and it was on Amazon and I was just like, oh, whatever, fine. We'll watch another bit of like easy comfort food TV watching. It is pure queer lesbian joy from episode every single mm. episode. And the first three episodes are written by Jamie Babbitt, who wrote But I'm a Cheerleader, another classic lesbian film. Okay. Fabulous movie. And I just thought it was going to be some kind of saccharine American, oh my God, sisters, let's all be amazing. And it what it shows was different sorts of that shows different ways of being a lesbian, right? There are mu- there are multiple queer identities in this very American kind of TV series, and I cried in every single episode. And there is a trans man, mm. and there's issues about racism, and there's an amazing character who's working out where she fits in that in terms of her own gender presentation. And the um, uncle buys her this beautiful suit, and she wears it without the jacket, without the tie but with the waistcoat and the trousers. And that's her kind of queer way of doing things. And I thought, God, it's taken from 1992 to 2022 to tell the gay story here. And how would it have been if when Mm. I was 12, I hadn't had that flash Mm. of ankle of queer, (laughs) but actually had these queer stories when I was 12. And it's taken until now to be able to tell them. I mean, it says what... uh gay man that I was when I watched Leave Their Own and I probably haven't watched it since I was a kid but I don't yeah. even remember the the queer subtext I just remember it being about girl power yeah. essentially it's amazing it's ama- and everyone just needs to watch it and and you know it never happens that me and my partner can sit and go well I'm a bit more like that one 
And uh, you're a bit more like that lesbian because there's never more than one on the telly. I mean, we all had we had the L word uh-huh. and, and we all studiously watched that yes. and that was important. But it was fringe in a way. Whereas this is just bang on the front page of Amazon Prime. And that's not even as a result of my algorithms. Do you know what I mean? It's, there's there's power of the Lord mm-hmm. of the Ring and, you know, League of League of Their Own. And it's I just I just think we need more lesbian and lesbian adjacent stories out there. And you know, I think part of the the issue with with some of the backlash against trans, which I abhor and will do everything in my power to prevent, is that lesbian stories haven't really been told. You know, lesbian visibility doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there was a kind of, God, we sat back while you gay men got everything, and now it's our turn, and now you tell me it's going to be about trans people. Like, there has to be a way of telling all our mm. stories and demonstrating the amazing beautiful coexistence of us all and and league of their own does that you know absolutely acknowledges the the the, the place of trans people in in these stories um but also tells the stories of lesbians and we need more of that yeah 100 percent. what do you see as the issue and why lesbian visibility is the way it is? i don't think there are enough writers i think people don't know how to write lesbians well um so uh they do they tend to come out and then they tend to die you know, as standard. Barrier guys. I mean, Gentleman Jack series two, absolutely phenomenal bit of TV making. Lesbians across the globe have flocked to it and it's been cancelled. You know, why would, why would you cancel such a thing like that? It's just, it's a beautiful costume drama featuring a butch lesbian strutting around the place in a top hat. Do <laughs> like, you know, click, click. yeah, exactly. Right. Like, what's not to like? So, <laughs> so there's, there's a reticence, there's a hesitance and there's a lack of imagination around lesbian and queer women's stories. And, you know, it's a sin and queer as folk, if I think about queer as folk, which was just absolutely transformative in the late 90s, and um, it's a sin now, you know, Russell, and Russell T. Davis in the middle writes Doctor Who and gives us Jack Harness and, and things like that, and a lesbian lizard, you know, so, so you get these moments, but it can't be down to Russell, do you know what I mean? Like, there has to be yes. other stories being commissioned and written and celebrated and obviously his stories focus on yeah, of course. gay men it's a sin it's yeah. absolutely legitimately a story about gay men do you know what i mean no one's going yeah but what about yes. the lesbians i mean although i think we could have had a few lesbians yeah. in it's a sin as lesbians were mainly burying <laughs> uh-huh. the gay men then right so you know we mm-hmm. could we could have maybe uh, my partner started off as a buddy for tht when she was 18 in 1998 no 1988 she's she was buddying wow and started up her whole career in HIV and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we could write the lesbians into some of those narratives, but that's not necessarily Russell's job. Russell's job is to write what he knows, yes. do you know what I mean? So, I think I think we need more of those stories and more of those narratives out there, and it's Sandy Toxvick, Sue Perkins, Claire Balding are amazing, but we need more. We need more of these mm-hmm. different people and on these different shows. So League of Their Own is definitely that. It feels like there's been a shift to me in the last few years. I think, uh, I feel like I see more lesbians in my media. And I don't know if that's maybe because I just watch only queer things now. So maybe that's a feedback loop. But it feels like it's changing. And I mean, it's uh, in stories for gay people and for trans people as well, I feel like stories are getting more interesting and more nuanced and there's backlash when it goes badly and people are trying harder to get it right it is changing it it, of course it is and um you know the current jodie whittaker 
and her assistant Yasmin are definitely got a lesbian thing going on. Like this is, and uh, you know, so so it is changing. I think when I watched League of Their Own, I was just really struck by how transformed it would have been to see that in '92. Yeah, yeah, it's like a yeah a sad feeling, isn't it? And and why that wasn't possible, and what was going on in the world, and what will trans kids look back and see, and you know, and and yeah. there's one trans character sometimes, and there's multiple ways of being trans. But would you know that? You know, would you, would you know that there are many ways mm. of being trans? And and would your mum and dad know that watching Coronation Street? I mean, I think mm-hmm. I'm a gay elder now, right? So 42. I think I never thought I'd be a gay elder at 42. But we took some young kids, teenagers, to Soho the other week for their first time. And I was like, do you think they'll serve sparkling water? Because I'm quite tired. And I thought, I am now a gay elder. Do you know what I mean? I'm gay elder. I'm taking the kids to Soho. And I'm hoping we get time home in time. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that looking back and kind of going, what did I need? And what, what would be different now if I'd had what I needed? Yeah. And as you say, sadness for a future generation that you can see some of the, the same problems yeah. repeating. Mm, that's hard. Yeah, but it'll be okay. And also, I'm glad we have this show, and I can't wait to watch it. Yeah, you know, you have to watch it. You have to watch it. Yeah. Hey, everybody, I'm Dave Holmes. And I'm Matt McConkey. And we are the hosts of Homophilia, the podcast where we talk to awesome LGBTQ plus people about the pop culture that they are consuming and loving and the love lives that they are leading. The conversations that we wish we had had access to when we were growing up. The the conversations that we would like to eavesdrop on now. But we have them with the coolest people in the world. Like who, Matt? Sir Andy Cohen himself. What? Michael Patrick King, Tig Notaro, Alan Cumming, Jinx Monsoon, and Vendela Creme countless queens from the drag race universe we're asking all of them about the pop culture milestones that shaped them as queer people and more importantly who they're having sex with there you go it's the queer conversation they don't want you to have we're having it on homophilia every week on the world of wonder network tune in listen to homophilia on the wow podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts In a world full of straight people. Aren't you glad there's WOW Presents Plus, the number one place in the world to see Drag Race? And so much more. Subscribe to WOW Presents Plus. Still only $4.99. Subscribe today as streamed on TV. Let's move on to your next item. My place. Which your place. So I've been in many queer places all my life. I worked at Stonewall for 14 years. I was a professional gay. I'm still a professional gay. Wherever I go, my sexuality is very much part of the narrative and I make the space queer, right? So I now go to a gym in Bessemer Green uh, called Strong Her. And Strong Her is a weightlifting gym for women. And it is the most affirming, glorious, wonderful, magical place and I, if I'd had it when I was 16, I would be so fit right now, right? But 
it's taken me till I was 42 <laughs> and it's and it's amazing and it's it's full of queer women and my coach is non-binary and they're amazing and it's full of women in headscarves and older women and um, women with multiple kids just getting some time and learning how to lift and it, women come in all different shapes and sizes and in crappy t-shirts and old vans you know just there's none of that preening none of that showing off just utterly supportive and amazing and it is the queerest I've, I've felt in ages like pure non-performative non-influencing I'm not trying to persuade anyone to do anything I'm not using my pa- I'm just rather badly doing a deadlift <laughs> and um, my coach this week was like I think you know you might always be a beginner Ruth and I was like ouch but i'm okay i'm okay i am gonna be <laughs> a beginner weightlifter in this gym for the next 20 years and it's just beautiful and i just think and uh and they do great queer inclusive sessions and self self-defense for queer kids and just like oh my days how pure and wonderful is oh, that it sounds like a haven it is a haven it also sounds like too good to be true. It sounds like something that you would fictionalize. Be like, oh, that'll never happen. I know, and I'm literally not. And Tig and Sam, who are the founders, are just amazing, strong women who are just really believe in women's fitness. And I think, you know, the gym scene has always been very gay male. And, and I think lesbians have historically been involved in team sport. And um, I, you know, I am not a team sport person. Mm-hmm. I'm not remotely interested in competing against other people and being hit by balls or like any of that shit i'm just not here for it so i've never really found my thing uh-huh. like i run around the park so slowly that people walk past me and encourage me Do you know like i this is not i'm not a, i'm not a jock nor never will be and suddenly i found a place where i can just be a bit crap but also, I'm getting little muscles here. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. And I, I occasionally kind of look in the mirror at my back and look at my, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, there's there's some form oh. there. Um, here's my core. And it just, it's just amazing. So it's it's just lovely to, yeah, at the age of 40, still be finding places that completely make me feel queer and where I don't have to be a professional gayer and I don't need to be on it. And I don't need to be educating or informing or persuading mm. or I can just be a bit crap and mm-hmm. yeah. and yourself. Why do you think you'd never got into fitness before? Do you think it's because it didn't feel like it was a space yeah, for you? Yeah, no, and I just never knew yeah. how, I mean, I'm not, I'm very clumsy. I don't know my left from my right. Like I, no one's ever going to pick me for their team. Do you know what I mean? Like that's never going right. to happen. So uh-huh. there was never a space where I was like, "Woohoo, this is it." Um, and I guess I never found a way. And I, I think it's quite hard for girls growing up who, you know, my body goes through all sorts of different shapes and sizes, seemingly beyond my control. Although chocolate ice cream is lush, do you know what I mean? But it does have consequences. So. <laughs> Like I've always had quite an odd relationship with my body and physicality and not much understanding of what my body can do, just what it can't do. So a kind of Mm -hmm. constant awareness of it's not good enough and it's not this enough and it's not that enough and it's not, and never found a way of knowing my body well enough to go, oh my God, it can do this. And 
how cool is that that it can do that? And I don't, I don't think those opportunities ever came up, but I doubt I sought them out either because I was just too scared. Mm. And I, and these, I work away from London a lot, so occasionally I have to go to a gym in a crappy hotel or whatever. And I was in um, Sitges for a week the other week on a on a thing, and kept going into this gym with you know beautiful men, and I was like, going, I really need one of them to spot me, and there is no way. There is no way am I asking them to spot me. And then by the fourth day, this beautiful boy came up and he was I, I'll spot you. I was like, thank you so much. It's really good of you. So so I think I'm a little bit shy and a little bit little. I've just never had the confidence to kind of get in there and do uh-huh. it. And never really known how, really. Whereas now I think I've found a way of being me in all that comes with that. Yeah. It's a nice lesson there as well about creating spaces that are accessible to communities who don't necessarily otherwise have access to yeah. those spaces. Yeah, of course we need lesbian body bodybuilders. Yes, of course. Obviously. 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 But what I love is that, that there's the lesbian there's the lesbian bodybuilding and then there's the Muslim mom who's got four kids at home and she's managed to carve half hour mm-hmm. out and there's the there's this amazing woman Lana who's one of the coaches and I think she's forty two and she sometimes swings from bars and her hands bleed and I'm like, You are so hardcore, do you know what I mean? Like you are just like deadlifting all sorts of weird <laughs> shit and I am so wish that girls could be could be helped to, to love their body for what it could do not for what it can't do and mm. and the, the, the obsession yeah. with hips and ratios and you know the porn that people watch just kind of creates completely unrealistic expectations about what women look like and what they want and who they are and even what a lesbian orgasm sounds like let alone feels like so you know, there's something about we're not helping women. I mean, we're not helping young men either now, but there's something about finding ways in which girls can get involved in a way. So any any women and lesbians and lesbian adjacent women around Bethnal Green, look up this gym because it's mm, strong. strong hair. Hair. It's pretty awesome. Love it. I love it. And I'm not paid, by the way. That wasn't an ad, oh, by sure. the way. It just, it's just, just genuine love. <laughs> <laughs> it's you're just motivated as Baroness of Yeah, Bethel I am Green. motivated as Baroness Bethel Green, but I I am not an influencer and no one's paid me to sell their vodka, do you know what I mean? <laughs> Let's move on to your last item. Yeah, so so my wild cards. Yes. It's kind of threaded all the way through this, but it's it's my suits. My clothes, my suits in particular. And I remember trying on my dad's old suit. My dad my dad had thrown away his old suit and I tried it on and I stood in front of the mirror and I was like, Fucking hell, I feel epic. Like uh, this, this is it. Mm-hmm. Just was like, bring it. And I speak very well, so I'm very dyslexic, so I don't always read. For, so I've I've learned to speak. So I do speeches and speak without notes. And it just gave me this kind of like swagger, swagger. Yeah, the strut, the whole thing. And then I didn't have much money, and I kind of went to Primark, Primark, and bought cheap suits and Zara and things like that. And then I got to grown up status. And I went to a tailor and I had a tux made, red suit made, three-piece double-breasted. I've got a blue suit, double-breasted suit. There's a beautiful little shop called Walker Slater that does tweed suits that are just beautiful. And I just have this array of suits and ties and gorgeous shirts and cufflinks and things like that. Uh-huh. And it's... um. You know, when I when I was at Stonewall, I remember you know people telling me I need to soften and I need to to soften my hair and I need to wear blouses, not shirts, and I should wear brooches and jewelry and and that I I shouldn't be too much 
And when I became CEO, I was like, fuck that. <laughs> fuck that. Mm, good for you. Why wouldn't you want a Daiki CEO? Well, Sorry, no, you can't. Um, if I'm being generous, <laughs> it was a time when we were trying to persuade people who didn't want to be persuaded and putting me in a room. I, uh-huh. I mean, I remember someone telling me, you're never going to influence Westminster very well looking like that. Um, you're going to really struggle to have a political influencing role if you carry on presenting in that way. And now I'm like, well, that's Baroness Hunt. What's this coming yeah, from? Yeah, queer yeah, people? yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the queers are the worst. Just the queers do this to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. And you know, and and I'm in the House of Lords now, and I was put in by Theresa May. And um, the reason I was put into the House of Lords is my work at Stonewall. But that was always a team effort. It was much more about um, how I work and how I talk and who I talk to and how I navigate different places and my work in and around the Church of England and my work in and around these communities that are hard to reach. So, and I was able to do, and they am able to do that work because of who I am and, and that strut. So I, I really regret it took me until I was 34 and CEO to start going, fuck that. And I really regret how much it undermined my confidence in my own sense of self. But I also take it now as quite an indicator that if I'm like, oh, what can I get away with today? Does this need to be softer? And after I'd been in the Lords a bit, I'd, I went to get a new suit and, and I was stood there going, oh, maybe it's, so there's, you may not know this, but there's two ways of getting a waistcoat, right? You can get a, a boy's waistcoat, traditional boy's waistcoat that does up quite here. But a girl's waistcoat comes mm-hmm. around, scoops around your bosoms. Yeah, it chest. scoops around yep. your chest and kind mm-hmm. of is a bit more like this. And I was like, I should get a scoopy waistcoat. And I should get a single breasted jacket that's a, that's shorter and a bit boxier. And Caroline was like, what are you doing? Babe, what are you doing? Like, you're never going to wear the girl's version of this. Cos- like, what is this cosplay? And somebody in the Lord's said, you know, I wouldn't wear a tie. I think it's not helping you. So I went out and bought, yeah. So I went really? out and bought these, um, it was winter, these woolen polo shirts, right? So like really nice kind of sun spells, fine kind of boys, but still and put it on and Caroline was like is that your straight look now like do you think you've suddenly kind of <laughs> that the femme version of Ruth um, you know you might as well put your tie back on babe so there's a kind of, so I'm not good at it do you know what I mean like even when I'm like oh here's, here's my feminine look so it's something that I don't think you know I'm always <laughs> so I'm laughing because I remember that's just reminded me of a very similar moment where I felt I told someone, oh, I needed to dress a bit straight for this. And they're like, you're in a pink <laughs> t-shirt. I'm like, no, but it's oversized. <laughs> it's not tight. It's not. <laughs> and having yeah. that exact moment of realization as well. It's like, yeah. what's the yeah, point? <laughs> when we try and hide, yeah, we, we don't, don't do it we very don't. well. It's like, <laughs> I was like, these, but I bought girls boots. They're still boots. Like, you know, uh-huh. You, uh-huh. you've got to a very good shoemaker, but. They're basic. There's not even a hit. There's no. There's no hint of a heel. Yet. So um, so I yeah. buy girls trousers sometimes, and then I resent them because they don't have pockets. So I just go back to buying boys trousers. So all my right. gym kits boys, all my trousers are boys, all my shirts are boys. You know, and it's they're more fun. They're better. They're better cut. They've got more pockets. They've got more space. But um, getting to a grown-up stage wow. where no one has ever said that to me before that men's clothes they are more, are more fun. fun. I love that. I love that. Like, maybe I need to reassess. There's so much lace. I had to find a whole new persona yeah. in order <laughs> to find the fun. Maybe there's fun lurking in my own there wardrobe. Would be. I mean, we may have different ideas of fun. <laughs> like, it's I, true. again, not an it's ad. True. 
I love Oliver Spencer, who is, um, they only do menswear. And they're so nice to me because I go in and go, I know you don't do girls. They're like, it's fine, Ruth. Would you like these trousers? I'm like, yes, thank you very much. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I don't even try now. Well, that's what I was going to ask you about getting a suit tailored. What oh, was that amazing. like? I mean, it's really bloody expensive, right? So you can't do it very often. And you mm-hmm. really mustn't cycle in it, which is important to remember. And I don't always remember that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's great because because I do have hips. Like I'm I'm not I'm not an androgynous kind of surfboard. I've I've got curves. There's no doubting my shape, and it's quite hard to get men's clothes to fit around that shape. And women's clothes are all like weird. I mean, you you wear them way better than me, right? So so getting it tailored, I could suddenly have that the the waist accentuated, but double breasted. The pockets in it. The trousers were nice i could get my braces put on it all designed to my height and my shape and it's just it's like the most sexy thing in the world to have a made suit for yourself did you have to explicitly say like don't feminize the cut of this yeah but i didn't want a boy's suit so it's really easy to get a boy's suit off the peg and some some tailors just do lesbian Uh suits that are boy's suits so i wanted a cut that was to me Uh but i didn't want those little features, so, so things like the length of the jacket, the length of the waistcoat, the scoop of the waistcoat, where it sits, where the shirt, uh, this isn't a tailored one, but where the shirt collars come down into, you know, and how that fits under your bra, where the darts in the shirt are, but uh, that you still have structure and that the tie still fits. And even things like ties, so 50s ties um, are shorter because men were shorter then. So this is a 50s tie, whereas most ties now are quite long. So to get a bespoke mm-hmm. tie means you can get one that, that fits my middle which is infinitely shorter than your middle uh. um, and things like that. So it's just a, but I, I, I was, had a really good tailor who understood what I was getting at and what I was working towards, especially when she made my tux. She was like, you know, I know, I know what you're going for here. And I mean, I remember a really awkward moment where me and Caroline were invited to Buckingham Palace for a ball and I, it, I absolutely agonized over what to wear because it was a white tie ball. And there was no way I was going to wear a long dress with long gloves. Do you know what I mean? It just wasn't going to happen. And mm-hmm. really, I thought, I don't want to let my country down. I don't want to let the queen down. I don't want to let myself. And we went in our tuxes. And um, it was an international event. And we stood out. And we absolutely got so many aggressive vibes that night from lots of different people. And I remember a guy coming up to us and just talking to us about nothing. And he was so kind to us. Like, he basically went, I've got you. I see you. I'm going to stand by you and I'm going to be really nice to you and I'm going to make sure everyone I'm with knows I'm doing that. And when people talk about allyship and they post on LinkedIn about how they've helped a black boy or whatever while they continue to hire people who look like them and equally stupid, fuck off nonsense, it's those actions that make the difference. Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's not always easy, is it? No. But I love what I've taken from this is for me, a suit is a symbol of my own yeah. repression. And for you, it's a symbol of of liberation. And I just love that both of those things are Absolutely. true at the same time. It's so wonderful. Oh, it's great to Isn't be it? here sometimes. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sticks, other than becoming the, the head of the House of Lords. Oh, um, so I run a business with my partner, Caroline, called Deeds and Words, and we work with organizations who are trying to make their place the best possible place to be for their staff. 
So we work a lot on cultures and ways of working and helping them unravel that. So that's hugely satisfying. And I met Caroline in Stonewall in 2008, and we did loads mm-hmm. of work together. Uh, and st- Caroline's kind of threaded through the DNA of Stonewall during that time and, and is, is written out of the story, if you like. And in 2000 and something or other, we fell in love. And so she had to leave Stonewall because of ethics and good practice. And we really missed working together. So now we work together again. So we do that and we go around the country and we talk to lots of different people and help different people. So that's that's a lovely way to earn my living. And I do that alongside the House of mm. Lords. But it means I've, I've, I've got a much lower profile now. I'm much more, um, I'm quieter. My influencing is much more subtle. I hate, I've come off Twitter. I'm on Instagram, mm. but mainly post pictures of my successful runs around a park or my time in Stronghold. Uh, uh, LinkedIn is off the devil, but I do a bit of it. Do you know what I mean? So I, I, I'm leading a different kind of mm-hmm. life with a different kind of pace now, and I think that it's a very, it's a very gentle sort of influencing that it, that is suiting me rather well for now. Making the headlines in the way that you did in your time at Stonewall must have been yeah. insane. I, I can't imagine. I can't imagine that. Yeah, I'm sure it's welcome to just still be feeling like you're making a difference without it all coming down on your doorstep. Yeah, I know you don't work with Stonewall anymore, but I wondered, I've been hearing a lot about, well, you were part of the the move of Stonewall and becoming a champion of trans rights, part of, if not the reason that that happened. And they've obviously had so much backlash in the last year or so. It's I feel like it's really reaching some kind of zenith of like yeah. attacks against the organization. Is there anything that you can say about all of that and where you think that's coming from and and what you would say about Stonewall. I mean, you see people saying things, Stonewall's trying to ban the word mother, which I know must be absurd, but people believe these things. They do. They do. I think that LGBT issues more generally are generally the canary in the coal mine on where a country is at in its journey on all sorts of different issues. So when, you know, first they came for... In, in some of these countries, when when you start seeing things about LGBT, it's it's the first acceptable way of demonstrating that you disagree with a prevailing liberal voice. And I mm-hmm. I think that in 2014, 15, 16, and 17, we were in a very different time. So we'd had um, John Major made a commitment to secure gay rights, made that commitment to Ian McKellen. Tony Blair made a commitment. Labour government, coalition government, Theresa May. We then had Brexit. We had Boris Johnson. And the country has is in a very different place to what it was then. The backlash against trans people has become overwhelming and negative in the extreme. But the way in which that negativity is expressed is more vicious and more cruel and on more platforms and more consistent than anything I've seen in a long time. I mean, so what's different now is A, we're in a different place as a country, but B, the mechanisms by which to express that disgust is is more available. The media respond to Mm -hmm. those things more than they respond to facts. So, So they look for the story to tell. How an organization like Stonewall navigates that is really difficult. So I was lucky that I was there at a time when um, 
what I was doing and what we were advocating for was was closely aligned with what Parliament wanted. And it's worth bearing in mind mm-hmm. that um, Stonewall called for a call, uh, reform of the Gender Recognition Act after the Women and Equalities Committee did it in Parliament. You know, it it was absolutely a a natural next step, and it's a different time now. And how Stonewall navigates that different time, I think, is very difficult. I think that it's an indication, though, that that you can't just support this stuff when it's cool. And mm-hmm. for a long time, it was, we will wrap our product in a rainbow because it's cool. But the progress flag, now that feels a bit hard. So we'll do the rainbow, but we won't do the progress. And we will um, we'll certainly have an LGBT network. And we're really excited about our cake. Uh, but we're not actually going to examine the extent to which our policies around healthcare extend to trans people because that's too tricky. And I think that it's where those foundations that were laid to be cool now need to be tested. And part of that testing is, do you maintain your support for the vital charities that are at the sharp end, pikey end of that? And if you turn your back on them when it seems to be tough and unpopular, then were you ever really on the bus in the first place? Does that mean that Stonewall makes mistakes? Oh, my God, all the time. Like if you want, if you want my litany of mistakes from 2004 to 2019, I'm very happy to share them with you. And my sense of personal responsibility about about how the trans thing went down is complicated and hard, I think. But I would do absolutely the same thing again. It was an abomination that Stonewall wasn't covering trans issues. It was vital that we did, and it was the right thing to do, and will be the right thing to do for the rest of Stonewall's life. But my God, it's shit. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was really, really well put. And I think a really great reminder year round, I think we all turn our attention during Pride Month to see who's putting their money where their mouth is and which organizations are actually yeah, following through with their their promises. But it's good to remember year round that we are we need to hold people to account and and well, I'm just so glad that you're there in the House of Lords um, continuing that work. I think it's wonderful. It must be incredibly challenging, and I'm just so glad that we have your voice. Bless you. I do my best. I think we're just about ready to wrap up, but before we go, should we play a quick game of But Is It Queer? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Great. So we're just going to decide once and for all, um, objectively, if things are queer or not. Um, I'll, I'll go first. Okay, Exposed Brick. Not queer. Not queer. Not queer. Why? I think it was queer for a while, and then it became appropriated by the heterosexual mm-hmm. community, and has now become so straight as to be problematic. I think I agree, especially when you can get uh, exposed brick. What's it? You know, yeah. when it's fake. It's it's just, it's, it's just <laughs> like gone so far the other way that it's now problematic for uh-huh. it to be part of our life. And I've got an exposed brick wall, and we're very uncomfortable about it. <laughs> but oh, to be in the time. In, in a 90s New yeah. York loft and to really be yeah. in that world. I, you know, take take me there. I want it you to know, be it's queer like Vogue, again. isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like it was ours and then it's not. And uh-huh. then, it, you know, so that, that it's on that same 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 level. <laughs> what, the no, song Vogue? Do you know? Yeah, maybe the song Vogue. I don't know. I, oh. Yeah, just something <laughs> like, 
if Beyonce can do a whole album of ballroom yes. culture, then you know what is queer now. But I'm not. Uh, the, the, I'm not uh-huh. cool enough. Let's not go down that path. <laughs> well, as this whole episode has disproven, you are very cool. But anyway, that's a subject for another time. What have you got for me? I've got. Is this Lego character of me and Ermin on a bike queer? Ermin. Oh, do you not know about Ermin? So Ermin is what members of the House of Lords were. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's that's the is that is Ermin yeah, an is. animal? So is it queer? Yeah. It's like a fo- like a yeah. stall or I mean, it raises right. a lot of questions. Okay. A, there's Lego, and you know uh, that's quite straight. But it is a bike, and it is a lesbian on a bike. But it is a lesbian in Ermin. <laughs> Oh, I feel like this is, I, I don't know. This it feels is. like a trap. This is it really is. wrapping up your identity. Should I give you an easier one? <laughs> no, you know what? I'm going to I'm gonna let you define that one. I think and, this is totally queer. And, and you don't even have I to do it right totally now. I think this is totally queer. And I think that um, Ermin is problematic, but sometimes lesbians make mistakes too, but don't deserve to be cancelled for it. <laughs> it's a really, really, really It is great a great Lego, Lego miniature. miniature. Um, Okay, I think this one might have be at cross purposes between lesbians and gay men, so I'm interested. Sportswear. Mm, I think that's a broad category. You're right. Well, I'm sorry. Then we're just going to have to. I mean, so if if you're talking Under Armour, then that is basically straight. If you're talking. English companies that have a small run of very nice wicking sportswear that are designed for men but are beautiful, then that's queer. Do you know what I mean? I think I think you know. I think it's I think it's a complex area. Um, generally speaking, sure. sportswear straight. See, okay, and so my take on it is, sportswear is currently, I think, the height of queerness, especially when it comes to gay really? men's clubbing. You've got your Adidas popping. Oh my god, are you back in that phase? Sports socks. Oh, that's so cute. Oh yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's, it's happening, and so it must be really hard. So, <laughs> so uh, in that sense, queer. Mm. I guess I will accept that. It depends. As an no, I mean, I'm not being. I mean, I'm just really sorry that that's where the gay men's movement is at the moment because, <laughs> like, are we not being punished enough? Do you know what I mean? I think, I think you deserve better, and I'm sorry. The '90s, the '90s are back, and uh, all saints still have a lot they to do. answer for. They do. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, they were gorgeous, though. Yeah. 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 Um, have you got I one more think, for me? Um, let me let me look around here. Monogrammed wallets. Oh, I think anything monogrammed is immediately I queer. I think so too. The inside of my suits are all monogrammed. Yeah, it's camp. It's um, decadent. It's it's of a time. It's out of fashion, but it will always be stylish. Yeah. And I think lesbians who yeah, monogram their stuff is absolutely part of a subversive movement against patriarchy. I love that. It also says, you know what? This item is going yeah. to last. Which, 
in a in an era of disposable fashion and and disposable everything. Yeah. No, you're queer, right. How queer to say this is with me for a good the good long haul. Absolutely. Great. I'm, I'm glad, glad we, we agree. agree. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having Great. me. It's been really lovely. Baroness of Bethnal Green, an official cool person. Cheers, babe. <laughs> so nice to chat. And um, is there anything, anywhere people can follow or anything people can do to support you or the work that you're doing? No, I'm afraid not anymore. I mean, I think go and check out Stone when I give them some love because they're having a shit time. And uh, keep an eye on the House of Lords and and find out more about it if you want to. And if you want me to come and talk to your school, let me know. I do lots of school stuff. Lovely. part of my lord stuff as well well thank you so thank much you. for your time have a good day thank you for listening to this week's episode of the things that made me queer and thank you once again to the baroness hunt of Bethnal green what a gorgeous conversation Uh, I will be back next Thursday with another special guest and more of the things that made us queer. Thank you so much. The Things That Made Me Queer is a World of Wonder production. Our theme song is Something Like Summer by Caveboy. Boy.